All right, so let's take a look at uh, 2 Peter 3. My intention um, is to get all the way through this today. And uh, I read the whole chapter last time. You, you just really need to get the flow of the text um, in order to understand what's going on here, okay? Um, so, let's see. Yep, this is the, uh, the NIV of uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, and I'll just go ahead and read verses 1 through 18 again. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately, deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also uh, wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and in the day of eternity. Amen. All right, so let's back up. We focused a good bit on verses 3 and 4 uh, last time, talking about uh, scoffers that will come, scoffing. And what they will say is, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Um, now, I didn't mention this last week, but there are a number of theories or, um, I guess, uh, um, ways of looking at history or understanding history. Um, you have those in the Far East who uh, understand what we would uh, normally call 
reincarnation, which is a somewhat cyclical understanding of history, that there is birth and there is death and then there is rebirth and there's just this eternal cycle of samsara, right? Um, you have those who coming out of that philosophically that think that everything repeats itself, that, that history is really just a cycle. It's just a circle that goes round and round and round and round. But that's never been the Jewish and therefore the Christian position because that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches a linear progress, a linear process that we're moving toward an eventual goal. And that's what we see in our text today, that we're moving toward Judgment Day. So although um, sometimes history repeats itself, quote-unquote, that doesn't mean that it's simply happening again and again. And there are those that are propounding today, uh, it's an innovative version of this cyclical idea, um, talking about uh, uh, the multiverse and uh, that there are multiple versions of perhaps you all over the I just recently read a Dean Koontz book that was about this. And while somewhat entertaining as a novel, it's a bunch of nonsense. You know, that there are a bunch of yous and a bunch of different universes pursuing a bunch of, uh, yeah, it's all nonsense. So although God knows every possibility, right? He knows every potentiality. There's just one universe and there's one you and there's one history that is progressing toward an end. There was a beginning, there was a middle, and there's an end. And uh, if you've been paying attention to what I've been teaching over the last couple of months, uh, I do believe that we've been walking along the edge of eternity for 2,000 years, but we are closer now than we ever have been. Um, and my primary reason for that is not because the world is worse than it's ever been in, in the past, certainly not because of COVID, which is, you know, sadly not terrible and not dramatic, not the, the sensational, horrific thing that the media is, has turned it into. Um, but because we are closer now than we've ever been to the possibility of a one world government. And uh, it appears to me that the leftist leaning Democrat party is pushing toward that communist ideal that is coming out of China, which interestingly enough, is where the virus came from, right? So uh, nonetheless, those are speculations. The reality is that we are progressing toward an end. We are progressing toward the day of the Lord, right? That's what the Old Testament calls it, the day of the Lord. Um, judgment day. Now, you can look at this uh, in several different ways. Judgment day as in your appearance, my appearance, before the judgment seat of Christ, but Judgment Day, as concerns the earth, is God bringing his wrath down upon the earth for sin. Now, God sent his son to the cross to pay the penalty for sin so that all of those who are in Christ do not experience the wrath of God. As 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and chapter 5 both say, we're, we're, that's not who we are. We're not appointed to wrath right? Uh, Jesus turns the wrath of God away from us. But that doesn't mean that the wrath of God is, is concluded. It's simply waiting. He's waiting until the fullness of time, until all of those who will choose to put their faith in Christ have done so. And then he will remove them from the earth and he'll pour his wrath out on those who remain. Um, but of course, there are plenty of people that don't believe that. They don't believe the word of God. 
they are in various states of doubt, disbelief, and rejection of the Word of God. And these false teachers that Peter is trying to address were among those. So they said, yeah, where's the promise of his coming? You know, ever since the fathers fell asleep. So they're talking about, you know, for them, they're talking about the, the patriarchs, right? Going all the way back to the Old Testament time or what we would call the Old Testament time. All right. So then verse 5, we'll start with tonight. Um, Peter says, they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Now he's going back to Genesis. Now this doesn't mean that he's saying that water is the basis of everything. But if you look at the way God spoke the universe into existence and things developed in Genesis, water is first. The earth is covered with water. It's formless and void. In fact, even the atmosphere was so covered with water and the vapor of water was so dense that from the perspective of one on the earth, which is the perspective we're given in Genesis chapter 1, right? It says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That's our perspective, right? So we have this perception of the earth uh, in the wake of the moonshots uh, in the late 60s of this beautiful blue ball hanging in space. But nobody had that perspective prior to that. All right? Now I want you to imagine going back to the Middle Ages and then before the Middle Ages. No, it, all we, the, our perspective is from the surface of the planet, looking up and looking out. And you have to understand that that is the base perspective. That's the perspective that is given in Genesis, not this perspective that would have been foreign to them of this beautiful blue ball hanging in space. So in Genesis, what you see is from the perspective of an observer on the planet's surface, you see the unfolding, the unveiling of God's creation. It's not intended to give a precise time or a precise order, but it is an unveiling, right? Uh, this is the so-called um, uh, day age com combined with a revelation day uh, perspective as concerns uh, interpreting Genesis chapter 1, right? Um, but Genesis 1 is not intended to be a science text. Uh, certainly, God's creation of the world is compatible with genuine scientific discovery because genuine scientific discovery is just a method of understanding the way things are and the way they develop, primarily understanding the what and the how of things, whereas Scripture tells us of the why and the who of things, right? So, um, and bringing those two together, each day develops, develops, right? And the earth comes out of the water, or, or as, the script, as the text has in Genesis 1, the waters recede, which reveals the earth that is beneath them. So that is the idea here that, uh, you know, the earth came up out of the chaos of the waters, that God called that forth, right? Um, and so that's what, uh, that's what Peter is talking about here. The earth was formed out of water, not as in water is what was used to form the earth, but it was formed up and out of the water. Just think of somebody that gets baptized, right? If you've ever observed the type of baptism that we practice in this church and many other churches, right? We put someone under the water, they're completely under the water. And then we raise them up out of the water. So out of the water comes this representative new life. That doesn't mean the water created the new life. It means that the person is coming up out of the water, right? 
which represents the Spirit, represents God recreating us on the inside by His Holy Spirit. And this is the idea that is given here. All right? Then he says in verse 6, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was, existed was deluged with water and perished. So now he's moving ahead in Genesis, and he's talking about uh, the flood. He's talking about what took place when God judged the earth, which was sinful the first time, and destroyed the earth with the flood. So water came from the sky, and the waters that had receded and revealed the earth broke forth. It says the, the, the fountains of the deep broke forth and flooded the earth and covered uh, the, even the highest mountains uh, underneath that water. That was God's judgment, right? So he's trying, to, he's trying to give us understanding that God already judged the wicked once. Right? And he's saying that these people have forgotten that God judged the wicked. Right? Now, he says, by the same word, that is the word of God, the word of judgment, the heavens and the earth that now exist are, star are stored up for fire. Now, remember that God promised never to flood the earth a second time. And that's what the rainbow is all about. Okay? Um, it is a promise. I will set my bow in the cloud. It's a promise that he will never flood the earth again. And of course, that's encouraging to those who have been through floods and difficulties uh, of that sort. And we've experienced floods in, in Texas. And, but, uh, you know, the, the flood in Houston some years ago from the hurricane there and Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. And so while those floods are, are temporary and uh, geographically isolated, they still are very destructive, but the rainbow reminds us that God is not going to just let the water go all over the earth again. But that doesn't mean the judgment is not going to return. We need to be warned by the Word of God that this is, this is the same God. God hasn't changed. His nature hasn't changed. The Scripture says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my Word will not pass away. God has not changed. His nature has not changed. And his wrath has been turned away by the death of Jesus on the cross. But it is turned away from those who are willing to receive Christ, accept Christ, put themselves in Christ, right? So that Christ removes us from the coming wrath of God. But very clearly we see here that the earth in its present state is ultimately reserved for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That's the purpose of the day of judgment, is the destruction of the ungodly. Again, we have an example of this in the Old Testament when the nation of Israel went into the land of promise, and God explicitly told them through Moses in Deuteronomy, I'm not giving you this land, and and allowing you to go in and destroy these nations because you're righteous. He said, no, it is because they are wicked. And the wickedness of the people in the land of Canaan at the time was, was unsurpassed. I mean, we're talking, you know, they offered their, their children, their firstborn children, babies, alive to their, their gods, right? There was a god named uh, Moloch, and uh, the, the companion to that uh, by another name uh, was uh, Chemosh. And 
the idol of this god was given a live child that was burned alive as an offering. Now, Israel followed that pattern some years later, and God judged his own people and disciplined his own people. But we have this example of God judging wicked nations. And of course, in Genesis, we have the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, which are two cities in the land of Canaan. And I don't think that they're isolated. I think they're representative of the wickedness that was going on in Canaan. In fact, the wickedness that was going on in Egypt, God says, you know, you need to escape uh, the, the, and turn away from the wickedness of Egypt so that I don't put the plagues on you that I put on Egypt. You will, you will escape those when you turn away from that same wickedness. Every nation, uh, every civilization that has risen to prominence has fallen the same way and by, as a result of the same issues. And, at, you know, we discussed to some degree um, the, uh, the sensuality that we find uh, in our nation today as it expresses itself in various ways, but specifically through the, the LGBT agenda. Um, but, you know, these issues have risen in every major civilization that has later been destroyed. They have all embraced homosexuality and gross sensuality in the same ways. And God saw fit to destroy every one of them to the last nation. We need to pray for our nation. Now, it's divided right now, but I don't think that division is a bad thing in that there are plenty of people who are simply seeking to hold... Um, values that are undergirded by the Scripture. And there are those that are upholding values that uh, have far uh, removed themselves, or people that are holding values that have far removed themselves from the Scripture. Um, we're seeing clearly now, as the result of what's going on, who God's people actually are. And it's not just people that go to church. There are plenty of people that go to church that are not following the Word of God. There are plenty of people even that go to Orthodox, church, Orthodox churches that hold to the Word of God that simply do not follow the Word of God in their personal lives. So it is incumbent upon us, if we are the followers of Jesus, to follow Jesus. And that means in, in all ways. You know, I focused on family values and I focused on life the last couple of Sundays. And I'm waiting for the outcome of the election to determine what to <laughs> preach on next Sunday. Um, so, yeah, we're still waiting with the sword of Damocles hanging over our heads, and we still don't know who the next president's going to be. And, you know, NPR calling Trump a liar because, you know, he declared himself the winner. Well, if he really believes he's the winner because of what he's observed, I'm not sure who you are to call him a liar. If you really believe what you're saying and you're not trying to deceive people, are you a liar? No, this is just a classic pattern of the media. I'm, I'm sick of them all. This is why I don't pay attention to them. Typically don't watch any of them. Um, if, I, if I observe any media, it's usually NPR or the BBC because they're usually not so deeply steeped in a partisan agenda. But, you know, that's not entirely. But I needed to know the outcome of the election. So I'm like, eh, I guess I got to go check the news and find out. Trump! He's a liar, and he's and I'm like, you know what? Who are you? No, exactly. Who are you to call a sitting president a liar? I'm sorry. I don't respect anyone who will do that. I don't respect them. 
If the man saw the outcome of certain states that he was concerned would not go his way and did go his way and said, hey, I believe I'm the winner, okay, then that's what he thinks. Okay. And that's what I asked her who won, and she said Trump. Yeah. Well, we haven't, the, all of the votes, and this is interesting, but this is what they predicted would happen because of the large number of mail-in votes. And because of the large number of mail-in votes, then, and who knows, perhaps there are underlying shenanigans. Again, I'm not... <laughs> I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to trust the Lord one way or the other. So if there ends up being, you know, a President Biden, I'll respect the office of the president. I've told people for multiple presidents, even if you don't like the person, respect the office of president. You need to do it. I said it with Trump, even though I didn't vote for him. I said it with Obama, didn't vote for him either time. I said it for George W. Bush. I didn't like him. Honestly, I liked him when he was the governor of this state. But once he became president, I wasn't real fond of him, especially in the wake of 9-1-1. I wasn't uh, fond of everything. But I said, respect the office of the... The, <laughs> the last president that I was fully and firmly behind was Reagan. So that's been a long time ago. Um, you're never... You can't put your hope in a politician, guys. We need to stop this. And we need to realize the nation is deeply divided. We've got to get along. And these politicians need to stop playing a zero-sum game where it's like my way or the highway. Half the country is against you no matter which side you're on. Grow up. The whole group of them need to grow up, right? You tell your kids to get along with other kids on the playground, but our politicians can't get along with each other. Give me a break. Anyway, free sermon there for you. Right, so here's the, the text that I use in funerals often. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So let me begin by talking about uh, uh, what I say at funerals often. Um, the only hope that I can offer anyone that they will see their loved one again is if that, those that are listening to me are in Christ. Now, if I know that the loved one that passed away was a believer by the testimony of those that, uh, you know, I may know the person. Uh, the last funeral that I was privileged to, uh, to officiate was our brother Vernon's funeral in, in March. And I knew Vernon personally and met with him regularly and knew of his faith. And so I know where Vernon is because I know that Vernon had his faith in Christ. And with someone like Vernon, I can tell everyone there, if you ever want to see Vernon again, you need to be in Christ. And I tell people in a funeral that they need to give themselves the permission to mourn, right? But not to mourn without hope and not to mourn or grieve because of how the person who has left and gone to the other side feels. What I tell them is, your loved one doesn't miss you. You miss them, and you should, but they don't miss you. Well, why is that? Because their perception, their perspective of time has completely changed from yours. If with the Lord 
A thousand years are as a day. What's 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 years? It's a matter of hours, right? Just using that mathematics. So what, what we would say is that this loved one of yours entered into the presence of the Lord, and about that time that uh, the, this loved one has had a chance to to exalt in the presence of the Lord and look around at the beauty of everything that is there in the presence of the Lord, he turns around and there you are. You've experienced a decade, two decades, five decades, whatever, but they haven't experienced time like you. That's amazing. That's awesome. And that is that can be, at least, a source of comfort for you and I when we consider because if I think about someone that has gone on before, there are people, I, I was thinking about a young man. I, I think the reason that I was considering this young man that I'm about to uh, tell you about was because I have a playlist on my, uh, in my iTunes or whatever it's called now, Apple Music. They just keep changing stuff. Um, but it's just called 80s, right? And I was kind of missing the 80s. Um, I kind of liked the 80s. They were quirky. Reagan was president. Did I mention that? Um, the anti-communist of all anti-communists. Um, but uh, I was in my 20s. Uh, I was preparing for ministry. But there was a young man in the 80s. And sadly, it had been so long since I thought about him, I couldn't remember his first name. I remembered his last name because I knew his older brother. Now, the young man I'm about to tell you about had an older brother named Josh. And right after I became a believer, one of my first friends at church was this fellow named Josh. And Josh uh, joined the military. I wouldn't say he, he went into the Navy. And uh, I became a believer uh, toward the end of my sophomore year in high school. And I think that I knew Josh for about a, a year, and then he shipped off in the Navy um, he might have been a year older than me. I thought he was my age, but I, I know he, he joined the Navy and he shipped off for six years, so I didn't see him at all. But then I started seeing his younger brother. His younger brother's name was Aaron, and I couldn't remember how much younger he was than me, but uh, in the process of, of uh, doing this little research that I hear, did here recently to remember the younger brother's name, whose name was Aaron, uh, I discovered he was five years younger than me. For some reason, it, he, it seemed like to me at the time that he was younger than that, but nonetheless, five years younger than me. And uh, Aaron was just a, a very charismatic kid, um, very popular. In fact, he went to my high school, and I started substitute teaching um, really very shortly after I had gotten out of college. Um, the, the year after I had gotten out of college, I started substitute teaching in Phoenix, and I went back and substituted at my high school. And of course, at this time, I'd only been out of high school for five years. So it's really, really weird to go back to your high school and sit in the teacher's lounge. You know, you're like, oh, do I belong here? You know? And, but I'm walking around the campus of my high school and I see Aaron. Literally, this guy is walking around school with a girl on each arm. He drove a, a nearly brand new white Mustang. He was just cool on every level. Um, 
he went to youth camp with us uh, one year. I was, I was uh, at the same church that I came to faith, uh, the North Phoenix Baptist Church. And uh, we went to uh, a youth camp in California called Forest Home, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, Aaron was there that year. And again, he was very popular, very charismatic. And he had this group of friends around him, and they called themselves the nerds. Well, they could act like nerds, and they were actually the coolest kids at camp, right? Well, I had done this skit, uh, this air guitar, if you will, with a friend of mine in college uh, to a song. And so I invited Aaron to do this with me for the talent competition. No, I'm not kidding you. There was, this is before camera phones, right? People had actual cameras. There were so many flashbulbs going off in the audience. Now, this is a big church, right? So this is, there are hundreds of kids at this camp. There were so many flashbulbs going off in the audience as we were doing this skit that I thought I was Elvis. You know, it was just, it was amazing. Um, the sad thing is, though, uh, about a year later, Aaron committed suicide. Um, there were lots of unanswered questions related to this young man. But long story short, um, he had access to a pistol. He had a, a, a very, very bad headache, was impatient to get the medication to deal with the headache, put a pillow on one side of his head and the pistol on the other side of his head and pulled the trigger and ended his life. In 1986. That's incredibly sad. What's even sadder is he was just a few months away from graduating from high school. If I showed you the picture of this young man, his senior picture, you would say, my, what a handsome young man. You know, somebody that has everything going for them. Well, why do I tell you this story in the midst of this? I suspect that someone could have faith and be in an extreme situation with an immediate solution like a gun and make a mistake and end their life and not wind up in hell. I'm not a, I'm not a Catholic who would say that suicide automatically winds up put someone in hell. I will say this, if you're contemplating suicide, you're not ready for heaven, right? The scripture talks in Amos about someone who is running from a lion only to run into a bear, right? So I'm not talking about someone who is dealing with this extre extremity of mental anguish that is, you know, brought on perhaps by their personal situation, but then also um, by this extreme headache that he had. But what do I bring that up for? Well, Aaron's been passed away, you know, 34 years ago, all right? Um, but if, as I hope, he passed into the presence of the Lord in spite of his uh, foolishness, maybe I'll pass away in 20 years or 30 years, and I'll see him there. So there will have been 60 years maybe since I saw him on earth. But it will be as if no time passed at all because his perception of time and my perception of time are vastly different. Now with our brother Vernon, I know that's the case. He just recently passed away 
20, 30 years from now, if I pass away, if the Lord gives me that long, I mean, Vernon will have had about enough time to, you know, greet the Lord and sing a few songs and turn around and then there I'll be. So this is what I want you to understand when it concerns the perception of time from the Lord's perspective. Now, I mentioned this in church some time ago, but I did the math on this. Um, and this goes back to how you look at Genesis. When I look at Genesis chapter 1, um, I don't see the necessity uh, for the earth to have been created in six 24-hour periods, okay? The, the word in Hebrew for day is the word yom, and the Hebrews use the word yom the same way we use the word day. Now, I could say today we still don't know who is president of the United States. Well, it's only been 24 hours now since the polls closed in this part of the country. So when you hear me say day like that, you would assume I mean today, as in Wednesday, whereas the polls closed on Tuesday, right? But if I say, you know, back in my day, we used to listen to this kind of music. What do I mean by that? Do I mean I had a day? I had a 24-hour period in the past where I listened to a certain... No, you know what I mean. You know I'm talking about a time period, specifically my youth, right? So I talked to you about the 80s and the 20s. Ah, oh, back in those days. Back in the day. Yeah, that was back in the day. You understand that I'm talking about a time period, an undefined time period, or a time period that is at least only defined by uh, the event or events that I'm describing surrounding it. So let's go back to what I said earlier about Genesis and the flood and so forth. Um, I, I look at a couple of theories when it concerns uh, creation. And number one, as I mentioned, um, Genesis is not intended to be a science text, okay? Um, it is describing, depicting the reality that is stated clearly in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then that unfolds visually. That unfolding visually using phenomenal language, the language of appearance, is what we would call, uh, and as it divides it into these days, these are days of revelation. So sometimes that's called the revelation day theory of uh, Genesis, understanding how that uh, lays itself out. So each day is not the day that God created this thing, this 24-hour period, but this represents the day that we are seeing the reality that God created this. Now, I combine that with um, the creation day theory, um, which indicates that we're looking at different time periods during which God created these various things. Not a 24-hour period, but a time period, right? All that to say, scientists are nearly universal in their belief as the result of their observation and testing that the earth is about 4.5 billion, with a B, years old. 
scientists are nearly universal in their understanding that the universe that we observe is 13.7 billion years old. Now, I won't get into the data behind that, but I believe that uh, that can be accommodated with Scripture, and I don't believe there's any compromise in doing so. All right? So, with the idea that the earth is 4.5 billion years old, what's 2,000 years? It's nothing. Now, if you would you know, try to hold hardcore to, you know, the, the earth is 6,000 years old. No, it's, you know, I'm going with Bishop Usher and the, the, the earth is 6,000 years old. And, and 2,000 years is quite a bit of time. That's a third of the, the age of the earth. But see, to the Lord, a thousand years are like a day going by. So I did the math on this. I'm not a big math guy, but I can do basic math, right? If you compare 2,000 years, and that's the distance between us and, and you know, Christ's advent, all right, to the age of the earth, 4.5 billion years, that is an extremely small percentage. It is 0. 0.0. Zero, 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 four, 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 repeating fours, right? What does that equate to? 2,000 years is to 4.5 billion years as eight hours is to 2,000 years. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you here? If you compare 2,000 years to 4.5 billion years as a percentage, right? As a portion. A way of understanding that is we look at 2,000 years and we're like, wow, that's a long time. But if you compare that to the age of the earth, that percentage is only eight hours as it compares to 2,000 years. So imagine eight hours passing. That's nothing. That's what we're talking about. So that's why when I look at these things, I think, you know what? We just have the wrong perspective. That's the problem. Um, it's, the perspective is kind of like me sitting at a traffic light. I mean, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I just get really impatient. I'm like, come on, let's go, let's go, you know? Or these days, everybody's got their phone, and they're all doing stuff on their phone at the lights. And I'm like... I'm driving, and I would like for you to get off your phone and drive because we're on the road, and I'm not here to wait for you to answer your text, look at your Twitter or your Facebook. Can we just go now? So I'm impatient, right? So if I need that to happen, then my perspective and my perception is time is going so slow. On the other hand, I've been in the position where somebody is frantically texting me, and I'm like, oh my gosh, can you just, and I, it'll come up on my watch, right? And so I'm driving, whatever, and I'm, I'm like, when I get to the next light, I'll quickly send them like a thumbs up or an okay, or I'll get to you in a minute, whatever. And I get to the light, and I'm you know, getting everything ready, for it, and then the light changes. I'm like, it didn't even give me any time. But it's the same amount of time. Are you following what I'm saying? So here I am impatient, and time is going so slow, and then I'm like, man, I didn't even have time to do what I wanted to do. It's the same amount of time. 
It's just my perception of time that has changed. I was reading this in Scripture earlier today, um, the, uh, the story where Joshua asked God to make time stand still. Do you remember that story? Right? So this is a, an impossibility from the perspective of physics. The earth can't stop rotating. There's just many, 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 many bad things that would happen if the earth stopped rotating. Therefore, I don't believe that's what happened. I do believe time stopped. But I believe what God did is gave Israel the ability to accomplish two days' worth of fighting within that same period. So from their perspective, time stood still. You've, surely you've experienced time like this before. Have you ever taken a nap and you thought you'd been asleep forever and you woke up and it was only 10 minutes? I, you understand what I'm saying here? It's our perception of these things. And so this is the way we need to look at the end of time and these realities, right? It's, this is about perception. If I look at this from God's perspective, 2,000 years is nothing, right? All right, so I'm going to trip over my own stool here. Um, and then the Lord tells us why he's waited 2,000 years. Now, at this point in time, he hadn't waited 2,000 years. It, it had only been less than 100 the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So there are those that believe that only a certain number of people have been chosen, and those are the only people that will be saved. Um, you have uh, folks among the Jehovah's Witnesses that think they've got that pegged to a specific number related to the number in um, Revelation, about the 144,000. You have our Calvinist friends, and for all I know, some of you watching or some of you here may be Calvinists, uh, who believe so firmly in election that really you can't escape double-edged predestination. That is, that God has already chosen those who will go to heaven and therefore has already chosen those who will go to hell regardless of their faith. I'm not a Calvinist. I don't believe that. I don't think that that is in keeping with the, the mercy of God. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't have foreknowledge. That is, he does know whether your faith is genuine or not. He does know whether you're, you have faith or whether you're a faker. He does know who is going to choose him. Now, our Calvinist friends would say, well, then, you know, if he already knows, then the point is moot because that means that they're already going to choose. He's created. No, but God also knows every choice you could have made. There's a big difference there. That doesn't force you into the choice. He knows the choice you have made and he knows every possibility. That doesn't force you into anything then. Okay? So, we are obligated to have faith, and we are completely free to have faith and to choose the Lord. It is God's desire, his wish, I would even say his will, that everyone would come to repentance. Look at the scripture here. 
God's not being slow. He wishes. Now, there are those who would like to make a distinction between certain words in Greek. Uh, there's the passage here where it says he wishes. Uh, there's the passage in 1 Timothy where it says um, that uh, he wants all to come to faith. He wants, he wishes, right? These are both words that express a variation of someone's will, okay? Now, in the end, God gets his will accomplished, but there's an overriding set of circumstances that God has put in place here wherein he has created you with a free will. You can resist God. It's not because you're stronger than God. It's because he's given you free will. There's a philosophical argument that's kind of interesting. Um, and it goes, it's kind of, it's a, kind of a, a conundrum, if you will, right? It's, it's supposed to be an unanswerable question. Here it is. Can God make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? So think about how you answer. If you say, God can do anything, of course he can. Oh, then you've just said God can do something that he can't do. And if you say, well, no, 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 because, you know, God's, God can do anything, so he can't do that, but now you're saying hey, there's something he can't do. What I would say is, God did make a rock so heavy that he chose not to lift it, and that's your will, your heart. And Calvinists believe in what is called irresistible grace. They believe that regardless of what you think or feel or believe, that God simply chooses to have grace upon some people, and therefore they're going to believe and they're going to be saved. That abrogates free will. That eliminates free will. That wipes out free will. And it's also very unfair. But see, I'm looking at Scripture here, and it says he doesn't wish that any should perish. The existence of hell should very clearly teach you that you and I have free will. God doesn't want to send anybody to hell, but he's created a place of separation from him and ultimate punishment for sin because people do choose to go their own way, do their own thing, rebel against God. If irresistible grace were the case, and why doesn't God have irresistible grace on all people? Well, that's the sovereignty of God. He can do what he wants. I agree. But it would seem to me that this is unfair. This is unjust, right? So I'm looking at Scripture like this that says he doesn't wish that any should perish, and I'm looking at the reality that we've been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus to come back as a clear indicator that God really does want anybody and everybody who will choose him to come. In fact, there is one sure sign that Christ will return. You want to hear what it is? It says, this is Jesus speaking, uh, and this is in Matthew chapter 24. I want to say this is verse 13. It might be verse 14. He said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. What precipitates the end? The preaching of the gospel to everyone. 
all nations doesn't mean all uh, nation, national geographical groups. It means all national entities, all of those who have a, a separate uh, identity and language and so forth. Well, there are still, uh, as of last count, some 7,000 nation groups in the world that have not heard the gospel or had the gospel made available to them in their own language. Now, that could happen very quickly. And again, we need to be ready for the imminent return of Christ. But if you want Jesus to return, preach the gospel. Don't wait for the temple to be rebuilt. Don't look at whether, you know, this world leader or that world leader is the beast. And, you know, no, preach the gospel. Because right here we see it, it's not his desire. He doesn't wish that any should perish. He doesn't want people to go to hell. So preach the gospel. Believe the God. What's the gospel? The good news. That Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture. That he was buried. That he rose on the third day according to the scripture. And that he will return. People will receive that or they will reject that. Their response is not your responsibility. But sharing your faith is your responsibility, right? Living your faith out and shining out is your responsibility, right? But then he says very clearly, the day of the Lord will come, and it'll come like a thief, right? Jesus said, I'll return like a thief in the night, right? It means you're not expecting this to happen. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So, there's the day of the Lord. Now, if you look at um, Revelation, I believe it's chapter 16, that talks about the bowls of wrath being poured out on the world. In Revelation 14, I believe we have a depiction of the Son of Man coming and taking his people off of the earth, an event that has been called the rapture, although that word is not used. Rapture means to be caught up, and that uh, is what we find in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, right, where it says uh, the, the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first. We will not, the dead in Christ uh, will come up before those who are still alive, and then we that are alive and remain on the earth will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. There's this idea of rapture. And this happens before the bowls of wrath are poured out because why? We, in Christ, are not appointed to wrath. So some years ago, there was a movie, I want to say it came out in 2000, um, called Armageddon. Now, you know, it, it wasn't an end times movie uh, from a biblical perspective. I don't know if you remember seeing this movie. It was about... Uh, this uh, asteroid that was coming toward the planet. You remember that? And Bruce Willis uh, was a was a miner, and he was going to go up into space with his guys, and they were going to land on the asteroid, and they were going to blow it up so that it would go around the Earth. But at the beginning of that movie Armageddon, there's a sequence that is scientifically legitimate, and it shows what would happen as an asteroid came toward the Earth. Well, there would be pieces of the asteroid that would start coming, right? Smaller pieces, causing fires and everything all over the place. And then there would be larger chunks that could break through the atmosphere and dash into the ocean and so forth. 
Look at the bowls of wrath being poured out on the earth. In fact, go all the way back to the, the, the judgments before that, the trumpet judgments, and it sure looks to me like as far as the explanation of what's happening, that that's what's happening. Nobody controls that. You can't vote that out. Well, I vote that the asteroid go around and everybody should listen to my vote because I'm a Republican or Democrat. No, the asteroid don't care, right? And there have been uh, age-beginning, world-ending events on the Earth in the past, right? Uh, scientists will tell you that the Jurassic period ended and the dinosaurs died because of an asteroid that struck the Earth or a large meteor that struck the Earth, right? Um, there is a, uh, there's a huge um, pit in Arizona called Meteor Crater. And this may have been where that asteroid struck or that meteor struck, right? Because what happens is it sends clouds of dust up into the atmosphere and it creates a winter, right? I mean, the sun can't get through and plant life dies and all sorts of things happen. So I'm proposing that this could be the type of thing that we're looking at here. And, uh, you know, there are some other possibilities, obviously, but the point is God is going to use some sort of means and the earth as we know it is going to end. But that doesn't mean that there's not something better coming. This is why your hope needs to be in Jesus, right? So I'll end here with verse 11 at 8.01. And I'm just going to let the text ask you the question. Since these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? I'll go ahead and go to 12. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. You know, it was said in an earlier period of time in this country, uh, among earlier generations, generations of people that believed in the Word of God, that they may have been so heavenly-minded that they were no earthly good. We certainly don't have that problem today, do we? People are so worldly that they have forgotten that this is temporary. We need to become more heavenly-minded again. We need to put our hope fully and firmly in the return of Jesus and not in the things that are going on down here. Amen? God bless those of you that watched via the stream.